You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bless us. Speak to our hearts, O Father, through your word. Open your word, O Father, to our hearts that as we look at this story, which is so well known to many of us, perhaps it's fairly new to others. Father, we ask that whatever uh, this may be, that, Father, you will press uh, these truths upon our hearts, that you would press, O Father, upon our hearts the reality that Jesus is alive, that he is reigning, and that he is seated in session at the right hand God the Father Almighty, and he reigns in absolute authority. Oh, Lord, we so thank you that that is the case. So, oh, Father, we pray, have mercy on us this morning and share us these wondrous things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, I had introduced my sermon, something like this. I said something to the effect, and and we were discussing uh, Palm Sunday last week, that the event that the church has historically called Palm Sunday uh, can hardly be overestimated. And I think I put it something like this. It would be really hard for us to overestimate the significance of what took place on Palm Sunday. You know, the crowds rush out to see Jesus, word that he has risen, that he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, has reached the ears. There's all this excitement. People rush out on the hillside of Mount of Olives to see Jesus, and they proclaim those words taken from Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they add even the King of Israel. And of course, that is significant in and of itself. But what is most significant is that Jesus conscientiously aboards, if you will, a young cult and rides that cult down the Mount of Olives and thus conscientiously and deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which is a messianic prophecy. And what Jesus is there declaring is, you are right, I am king, and I'm not just any king. I am the Messiah king. I am the messianic king who has come to take away the sins of my people. That is significant. Um, That is significant. This morning, we come to another event that took place shortly after that. And I can say the same thing in regards to this event. It can't be overestimated, uh, the significance 
of the resurrection. Now, I always want to be careful on Easter. I don't want to give anyone the impression that we only celebrate the resurrection on Easter. Uh, we don't follow a church calendar here, uh, per se, but uh, there are events that, um, that are on the calendar that we do follow. Uh, the, the Christmas, the Advent season, uh, we always like to focus on the incarnation, especially at that time. And that's not as if we don't focus on the incarnation any other time. And the incarnation being God stepping into time, space, and history in the person of Christ Jesus. Uh, we take a few Sundays off, and we, we especially focus on that. But we like to do the same on Palm Sunday, and we, we can hardly do anything else on Easter Sunday to focus on the resurrection. But properly, every Lord's Day worship service is a celebration of the resurrection, isn't it? Because if there was no resurrection, we wouldn't be sitting here, because there would be no Jesus to save us. There'd be no Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and minds to enlighten us. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to tell the story. I want to take a brief look at a couple of the key events that led up to the crucifixion, and then from there go, uh, that serves as our context of our, of our text this morning. From there, I want to go to the resurrection story as told by Matthew, and then we'll look at a couple points of application after that. Does that sound good? I'm hoping that's a yes. Uh, if you'll turn back with me to chapter 26... Uh, back to maybe verse 17 would be a good place to start. Chapter 26, verse 17. There you read the words, now on the first day of unleavened bread. Now, this has historically and traditionally been uh, referred to as Thursday. Uh, Thursday. There, I, I want to share with you, there is some ink spilled over this, and there are some scholars that believe this is happening on Wednesday, and that's a story for another day. Um, some of the scholars are pretty esteemed scholars. Uh, one of them was, uh, some of you will be familiar with Dr. James Boyce. Uh, if anyone's ever heard the Bible study hour, if you've ever heard that. I, I used to be able to imitate him pretty good, but <laughs> I don't hear him much anymore because I'm always right here on 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. But um, he held that it was Wednesday. Uh, but traditionally, I think for most of us, I'm currently under the conviction that it's, it's Thursday. It's during the day Thursday that the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, where would you have us prepare for you the Passover, to eat the Passover meal? And, um, of course, they go and, and uh, Jesus uh, later, after sundown, enjoys the Passover with his disciples. Now, the key thing is it's after sundown by ancient Jewish reckoning, the sundown would begin the next day. It can be confusing to us because we think of the next day as midnight, you know, and then, but sundown uh, would be the next day. Uh, at sundown on Thursday, it would now be Friday. So Jesus eats uh, the Passover meal with his disciples after sundown. If you look at verse 26, you see there Jesus uh, institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, which we'll be officiating this morning and looking at this morning. And in verse 30, there's something very interesting takes place. When they had sung a hymn, uh, they sung a hymn. Now, uh, there's, there are many, many folks that believe that the actual hymn that Jesus sang was Psalm 118, as I made reference last, last week. Uh, there's others. I think Psalm 136 comes up in some of those arguments as well. But uh, Psalm 118, we don't know for sure. It didn't tell us, but uh, it, it's, it's highly likely it's one of those two psalms that Jesus uh, sang himself. 
And then we're told that they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, they cross over the Kidron Valley. They go up on the uh, Mount of Olives. And if you look at verse 36, they go to a place called Gethsemane. And John chapter, I think it's chapter 8, maybe the beginning of chapter 8, maybe verses 1 and 2, there we're told that this is a place where uh, Jesus and his disciples often frequented. They often came to this place. It was a special place. And I I know this week, um, I think maybe Friday-ish, yesterday, off and on all day, I kept thinking and meditating what it was like for Jesus to meet at Gethsemane with his disciples through the course of his ministry and the various times that they met, knowing, full knowing, that the last time he would come to this garden, he would be under so much stress. He'd be under the, the stress of knowing that he was going to be going to the cross and not simply, not simply enduring the physical pain of the cross, but enduring the soul anguish of experiencing the wrath of God for the sins that we deserve. Um, I just wonder what that would have been like. But at any rate, um, it's in the garden where his betrayer shows up. That's verse 47, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12. Uh, He has betrayed Jesus. He has led crowds with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders uh, to Jesus. Jesus is arrested. And then through the night, he is put on trial, and he's given a a very unjust trial. And... uh, He's brought before Caiaphas, he's brought before Annas, he's brought before Pilate, he's brought before Herod, and then by the time we get to verse 26 of chapter 7, there he is delivered to be crucified. And we know that he was mistreated, he was mocked, I mean, many of us uh, know those details. I want to turn your attention to verse 45 of Matthew 27. Uh, It says there, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Um, here, when we compare this passage with Mark, we, we learn that Jesus was crucified approximately nine in the morning, probably about nine in the morning. And around uh, the sixth hour, that would be noon, around noon, um, the sun discontinued shining. It ceased to shine. Um, you know, one of my favorite uh, hymns, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, written by Isaac Watts, he says, Well, might the sun and darkness shine and shut his glories in, while Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, his creature's sin. It's hard to get that out without a tear in the eye, isn't it? So beautifully put by that hymn. And what is going on? What is the significance of that? The significance of that is the crime of crucifying Jesus is so horrible that the Lord decided to do away temporarily with his common grace of allowing the sun to shine on humanity. And darkness veiled the land for three hours. And that is to appraise us afresh of the cosmic uh, uh, implications of what is taking place here. Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, his creatures, sin. It's breathtaking. Verse 50, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and he yields up his, seer, his spirit. And in verse 51, notice the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, how do they know that? You ever ask yourself, how did they know that? 
because only the priests and only a certain select few of priests would have had access to that. So how did they know that that inner curtain was torn in two? It's because the priest told them. This is, this is being published. It's being circulated. It's being verbally communicated. It's being talked about. If this weren't so, uh, it would have been shot down right away. That curtain being torn in two is representative of so many things. We could spend the rest of our morning on it. I don't want to go down and get sidetracked on it. But what it tells us is there's now access. There is now access to God. And that access to God is in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, we're told that the earth shook and the rocks were split. Tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. And after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. We're told these things. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, the other gospel writers. They tell us this, and as I keep making reference to the other gospel writers, this would be a good place as any to add something here. When we're studying the gospels, we need to always be aware of the genre of literature that we're studying. Otherwise, we're going to fall into a mess. Because first of all, it's ancient literature. And folks aren't running around with wristwatches on that have digital clocks on them. They didn't have cell phones with digital clocks on them. And a lot of the time frames are approximate. They're approximations, if you will. And a lot of times, skeptics will look at this literature and they'll say, listen, they can't get the time right. They can't get this right. They can't get that right. When these same skeptics wouldn't expect anything like that from any other ancient literature. We have to keep in mind the literature that we're reading it's gospel. It's, a gospel. it's gospel literature. And furthermore, criminologists tell us, and if you talk to any detective, they'll tell you this. When you're trying to uh, look at eyewitness testimony, you know, there's an accident down on Main Street. Four people see it, one on one side of the road, one on the other, one down the road, one up the road. Four people see the accident. Um, if you question all four of these people about the accident, would they all give you the exact same words? No. Um, and in fact, if four people see a crime and you want to try to validate the eyewitness testimony, you call these four people in a room one by one, and they all give you the same exact words. What can you conclude from that? They're, all, they're, they're, they're off script, aren't they? There's a script. No, when people, you know, someone from one side of the road is going to see things a little different than someone on the other side of the road. Same thing can be said down the road. Same thing can be said up the road. And that's what we have with the four gospel writers. And sometimes it can be confusing trying to corroborate them. But when they're, when they're properly interpreted and corroborated, even though there's still a couple of wrinkles where we, we scratch our heads, we understand that these things, they just fold together. But at any rate, we're told here that this man, Joseph, from Arimathea, the other gospel writers tell us that he was a member of the court, that is, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he goes to Pilate. Now, he's a believer. And he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body. The body of Jesus has to be taken down because the Passover is near, and there can't be any bodies hanging around to defile the Passover, especially with it being the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of, of Passover. 
And this is, uh, he's often forgotten because this is a very death-defying move on his part. And this had to have compromised his relationship with the Sanhedrin at this point, having any sympathy uh, for Jesus. And for that matter, he had no idea how Pilate was going to respond. Nevertheless, his love and devotion for Christ motivated him to go to Pilate and ask for the body. Pilate gives him the body, and he puts it in his tomb where nobody had been laid. And so the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is fulfilled, that he was um, put in a rich man's tomb, if I might paraphrase that. So Jesus is buried in, in Joseph's tomb. And um, if you look at verse 16, or 62 uh, of chapter 27, the next day, that is the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. You know, and every year I usually make reference to this. It's amazing, and it always still amazes me that the chief priests remember this detail. They remember that Jesus promised he would rise from the dead, whereas the disciples, it's, they, they, it, it's completely over them. Um, they miss it. I'm not slamming the disciples. I would have missed it too why people don't rise from the dead, do they? I mean, would that be hard to swallow? I mean, you'd be like, did I just hear that? You could probably even imagine, what did he just say? He said he's going to raise from the dead. That's what he said. What's he talking about? You'd probably be looking for some kind of figurative fulfillment of that or something. Uh, But they seem to have forgot it, and let's not forget the trauma of the events that have taken place. They don't remember it, but... The chief priests remember it, and they go to Pilate, and they want Pilate to assign some guards to the tomb. Uh, they, uh, they, uh, they want him to order, verse 64, that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And notice how they, 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 they say the last fraud will be worse than the first. Well, Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Now, these soldiers would have been Roman soldiers. So they, they uh, assigned these Roman soldiers to the tomb. We're told in verse 66, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And um, that is the context upon which we come to chapter 28 and verse 1. And there we're told after the Sabbath, that is after Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day, this would be very early in the morning on Sunday morning, Uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. The other Mary would be the Mary of verse 56. If you look in chapter 27, verse 56, that would be Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And the other gospel writers tell us there were many other women there. Matthew, for his purposes, is centering on these two Marys, if you will. Uh, They get up early. They go to the tomb to see the tomb. Verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake. See, there's the earth shaking again. It happens, actually, if you start paying attention to it, you'll notice that it does happen with some frequency in Scripture. The Psalms, David sometimes talks about as God acts mightily, the earth quaked, the earth shook. Uh, here the earth shakes as this angel uh, is dispatched from heaven and comes and rolls back the stone and sits on it. Verse 3 tells us his appearance was like lightning, as we can only imagine. You know, the Old Testament story of Moses being up on Sinai with God for 40 days. He returns down, and what's, this, what's going on with his face when he comes down? 
It's radiant and shining so much that everyone was running from him. They were fleeing from him. Why? Because he had spent this time, these 40 days with God. God dwells in unapproachable light. And there Moses is spending this time with God, just 40 days. And now his face is radiant, so much so that he had to veil it because the holiness of the radiance of, of God being reflected from, uh, from Moses was, was terrifying to them. How much more an angel who has dwelled in God's presence since creation? We're told it was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. That's, that's, uh, that, that's emblematic of the purity of this being. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They're rendered completely powerless. And notice verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now notice the angel says to the women, don't be afraid. But the angel does not say to the guards, don't be afraid. You know, in, in today's culture, all the talk about identity politics, and there's this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's that, and everybody's being divided up into all of these little bins, and um, boy, the, the, church should, the church should say loudly, and none of that, none of that, none of that, none of that. There's only two different people in this world. There are people who believe and follow and have submitted to Christ, and there are people who have it. That's, that's the scriptural assessment of human beings. Now, sometimes referred as sheep and goats, however you want to put it, believers, unbelievers. That's the only line of demarcation that there is. I'm not saying there isn't differences between us, but we shouldn't be swept up in all of these various categories and all of this stuff. We, um, and here we see that line of demarcation the, the, the angel says to the women, do not be afraid. He does not say that to the guards. Now, notice the angel continues in verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Now, see, this is the difference between the women and the guards. What are the women doing there? It's really a beautiful act of devotion, isn't it? We know from the other gospel writers that they're aware. The women were there when Jesus was being buried. He had to be buried very quickly. He had to be put in the tomb very quickly. And he didn't get a proper burial. And their love and their devotion and their commitment and their surrender to Jesus demanded that something be done about that. So they show up early in the morning. They go to the tomb with spices in order to anoint his body for burial. They love him. That's the difference between these guards and these women. And the angel says to them, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, he's not here, for he is risen. Can you imagine that moment? You, you, you would be stunned. What? He's not here. He's risen. 
Notice that the angel adds, as he said. Jesus had told his disciples over and over again on the third day he would rise. He had said that over and over again. The the chief priest didn't miss that detail. He said it enough that they were aware of it. So he published it a lot. But in the trauma and in the unbelief, and listen, there's a mighty application right here for us. Sometimes, sometimes we have thoughts of doubts about all this, don't we? Sometimes the true believer, the true lover of Christ, has doubts about the gospel. And here, here is an example of these women. Look what they're doing. They're coming to serve Jesus. But in terms of him saying that I rose, rose, that I'm going to rise on the third day, it's almost like they didn't even hear him. And notice how merciful the angel is with them. He doesn't harshly rebuke them. He doesn't harshly reprimand them. He just says, as he said, he told you he was going to do this. He's alive. Now, he gives him this charge in verse 7. He says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. A transformation takes place in the life of these women. They come to that tomb serving a dead Jesus. They leave that tomb serving a risen Jesus. And there's a huge difference between the two, and that still goes on today. There are many people crawling to church on Sunday morning, getting to church in their own power. They're not, they're not being, it's up to them to put on their clothes and get to church up to them because they're serving a Jesus is really, I mean, we could say he's alive, but in all tense of purposes, he might as well not be alive. Has your heart been struck with the reality that he really is alive? Has your heart truly been struck with the implication that Jesus is really reigning? They depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. That's a great detail right there, with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. You know, how can you have joy and fear at the same time? I've been afraid before, and it wasn't joyous. Most of the time, it's not joyous at all. But there's both fear and there's joy. What is this fear? This reverential, awesome fear of the cosmic proportions of this, of the, of, of the trauma of this, if you will, of the magnitude of this. Jesus is alive. And then the joy that comes alongside of that. And as William Hendrickson was so faithful to point out, he says there about verse 8, he says, notice that the word great doesn't modify fear, it modifies joy. Well, they're filled with fear, but they're filled with great joy. Some of us know this. Some of us know what this is like. When a believer is in the presence of the Lord. You're overcome with a sense of fear and respect. You're overcome with a sense of awe. But if you've had those experiences, you also know that it's joyous at the same time, isn't it? 
It's wonderful. You want it to go on, but it doesn't, does it? These are moments are brief, and they, they happen every so often. But it's a, it's, a, it's a foretaste of heaven, actually, to be filled with this reverential and awesome fear, if you will, and great joy at the same time. They depart quickly. They run to tell the disciples. In verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, the gospel writers report this event, and um, they do offer, uh, to some degree, theological um, the theological implications of this event, but most of that actually is done by the epistles. And most of that is done by the epistles. If we want to look at and begin to really look at the theological import of this, uh, we learn that from the epistles. And I want to show that to you this morning by looking at a couple of passages. I invite you to turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians. We'll start there. That's a good place to start. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 and following, probably to around verse 22. My goal this morning was to tell the story, make some application uh, of the story, and uh, here we are at the application part, if you will. If you look at verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Paul is dealing with some uh, errors in regards to the resurrection. There's some are saying there's no resurrection from the dead. And there he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You see the implications there. In other words, if Christ hasn't been raised, if Christ is still in the tomb, then everything I've been saying this morning is in vain, and our faith is in vain. Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep, and Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. See the relationship of the resurrection and how Christianity just falls apart if Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is first century. Paul's preaching to people who could check this out by talking to people who were there. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Building on that, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
My emphasis is my point coming to chapter 4 is for verse 25. But for sake of context, let's begin with verse 16. Paul's arguing what we call in theology the doctrine of justification by faith. And he's arguing from the person of Abraham. Why argue from Abraham? Because there's two individuals of the Old Testament who are highly esteemed by his Jewish audience. And it would be Abraham and Moses, and it would be very difficult to probably determine who they would esteem higher, uh, Abraham uh, or Moses, uh, both very highly esteemed and rightfully so. In verse 16, Paul says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now, this is really heavy and dense. So if you're not getting all this, don't worry about it. It's not my intention to try to sort this all out this morning. That would be very lengthy. Uh, But follow along. Um, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, what promise? God had promised Abraham a son. Abraham is now 100 years old. His wife is 90. They don't have any children yet. It would be tough, wouldn't it? Uh, When's this child coming? I can tell you at 53, uh, you know where I'm going with that. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believes God. And that faith unites him to God, as we're going to see here in a few moments. And in this union with God, the righteousness of Christ is brought to him, and he is made righteous this way. He is not righteous in and of himself. He is clothed with Christ's righteousness through this transaction. Verse 23, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It's the same way that we get righteous, by God giving us the righteousness of Christ. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from, who raised the dead, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now look at verse 25. This is my point in coming to this text. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. Okay? Why did Jesus get delivered up? Why did Jesus get put up on the cross? He got put up on the cross for our sins, right? Notice what's said in the second line. And raised for our justification. Now what does that mean? That Jesus is raised for our justification. What that means is that the Father and the justice of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was satisfied with the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me flesh that out and say that a couple other ways. What that means is when Jesus went to the cross to die for the sins of those whom he came to save, that that sacrificial offering of his body satisfied the justice of Almighty God. 
And it is verified by the fact that Jesus was raised on the third day. There we see by the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, we can know that we've been justified. Now, let me flesh this out one more way. When the world, the flesh, and the devil has got the best of you and you're feeling filthy, or when a person is coming to Christ and the Holy Spirit's been working on them and they're beginning to see their sins and they feel filthy, how can we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sins because he was raised for our justification? He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. If Jesus would have been a sinner, he would still be in the grave, and he would not have been a satisfactory. He would not have been a sacrifice without blemish. Does that make sense? We need to preach this to ourselves. The resurrection teaches us that our sin debt can be paid, and paid in full. And it goes much further than that. It, it goes so far as that to say that the, that the perfect righteousness of Jesus is, is ours. We didn't earn it. We couldn't have earned it. We've already blown it. But Jesus earns it. He earns it for us, and he gives it to us because it is necessary to get into heaven. That's the ticket. You're not getting into heaven without that righteousness. We are not getting into heaven without Jesus being our advocate, however you want to put it. That's the only way in. That's how Jesus can say in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Does that make sense? One more. One more, and I'll close. Look at chapter 6. This passage is especially, um, I'm especially fond of it because I preached my presbytery sermon uh, on, this, uh, on this particular text. If you look at verse 3, Romans 6, verse 3 Paul says, do you not know that all, who, all of us who, were, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What's Paul talking about there? That's really hard. I've had people ask me about it. What do I do with, John's, or with uh, Romans 6? You're going to study that one a little while. Um, what Paul's talking about is union with Christ. Faith brings us into union with Christ. And it brings us into such close union with Christ that Paul is telling us that it brings union with us into his actual death. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that our sins actually are nailed to the cross. The sins of all who trust in Jesus are nailed to the cross. Most say, well, where do those sins go? They get nailed to the cross with Jesus. They're, they're, they're counted to him. He gets a record that's how I used to preach this when I was going and doing services at the jail. Everybody was always talking about their record. Yeah, we have a record. And that record goes to Jesus when he goes to the cross. Oh, they got that one. The record goes to Jesus. Our record goes to Jesus. Faith brings us into such union with Christ that that record goes to Jesus. And in this sense, we die with him and we're buried with him, verse 4. We're buried with him. Jesus dies. As he dies, he dies for the penalty of, of that record so that we could say that the old person, that old person dies with Jesus in order that, continuing in verse 4, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And that's what I want to share with you this morning because the resurrection also shows us that we have newness of life. This is so important. If you're battling addiction, and all of us are to some degree, and you're battling addiction, how do, how, one, of, one of the fundamental uh, pieces that we need to win that battle is to understand that faith brings us into union with Christ, and that faith union takes that old man or that old woman and does away with him or her so that out of this transaction comes a new person. Paul says it this way. He says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is what? He's a new creation. And faith brings us into such close union that then, then, then we're, in a sense, we're with Jesus when he's on the cross. Sometimes people will read these gospel accounts and say, oh, those evil Pharisees, those evil scribes, those evil chief priests, those evil people. Who put Jesus on the cross? We all did. Every one of us. He had, we were so twisted and messed up that he had to go to the cross and die the penalty of our sins in order to give us forgiveness. But the beauty of the resurrection, and I close with this, the beauty of the resurrection is that on the third day when Jesus rose, he rose for new life. That not only could he give us cleansing and healing, not only could he give us forgiveness of our sins, but he's also giving us new life. Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, continue to, we could continue to go on and on, but our minds can only take so much. But the implications of what has happened here, Father, are staggering. Oh, Father, we so thank you, Lord, for this is an event that caused the earth to quake. It's an event that changed the calendar. It's an event that changes everything. Oh, Father, press these truths upon our hearts this morning, Father. Press them on our hearts, not only as we have heard the gospel preached, but also as we see the gospel before us by coming to the table this morning. And we see the gospel presented by the symbols of your body and your shed blood, O oh Lord. We pray, O oh Father, that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to press this grace upon our hearts. Press it upon us afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.